0: things you don't really need to know, but probably should. I'm Kira Revan, and this, this is the Sunday 7. On today's Sunday 7, we take a look back at some of our favourite stories of the year. We're catching up on NASA's asteroid exploits, recapping on AI captures, discovering how to deal with disinformation, and hear the story of the one who was outed by Netflix. This is the best of the Sunday 7 2023. Thank you for listening this year. We're back in 2024 with more of the biggest science and tech stories every Sunday. October was a big month for NASA and the U.S. space program. A seven-year mission to explore the asteroid venue reached its conclusion as material from the asteroid finally reached Earth via the osiris Rex program. This was the moment when the capsule containing asteroid samples from 200 million miles across the solar system finally touched down on Earth.
1: Unofficial touchdown time? 8.52 a.m., mountain? And the team can now breathe an immense sigh of relief. We now have the Sample Return canceled the SRC.
0: Azra Benu has been described as the most dangerous rock in the solar system because it's on course to potentially hit Earth in 2182. The samples were grabbed in 2020 when a probe the size of a transit van successfully landed on the surface of Bennu and then headed for home. Professor Sarah Russell, who is a science team member of NASA's OSIRIS-REx, described what that was like.
2: We had this idea that the asteroid might be a little bit like the surface of the moon. It would be quite a hard surface with some fine-grained material on top. But when we got to asteroid Bennu, we found it was full of these massive boulders, some of them metres across, all jumbled together. It was just a rubble pile of different boulders. Uh, So it was really hard, firstly, to find somewhere to land and find somewhere to sample, because a sampler had been designed to pick up tiny pebbles and bits of dust. So we had to find a spot on the asteroid that looked like we might be able to collect that kind of material.
0: So what's so important that NASA spent seven years to grab these samples? Speaking before the asteroid landed, the principal investigator for NASA's OSIRIS-REx mission, Dante Loretta, laid out what the plans are.
3: We'll begin to process that material looking for the different rock types. We really want to understand the history of this asteroid, which reflects this long duration of the solar system. I have over 200 scientists in 60 different laboratories all around the world. And we're gonna literally be understanding processes that existed before our sun did before the Earth came into being, and really how did the first materials in our solar system start to grow into the planets that we see today.
0: The process for unboxing the sample material has already begun, with scientists surprised by the amount of black dust that the probe has gathered. But asteroid Bennu is known to be rich in carbon. Lead curator of the project is Nicole Lunning, and she explains the precautions they've been taking.
2: Sample return capsule is kind of like a nesting doll. We have these multiple layers of protection. Um, and then that sample canister will have a nitrogen flow put on it, what we call a nitrogen purge. And with that nitrogen purge to protect the sample to keep any incursion of terrestrial atmosphere coming into that canister, it will be flown from Utah here to Houston, Texas.
0: This is the furthest extraterrestrial sample ever brought to Earth, and it didn't have to go through the process of burning up in the atmosphere. So, should we be concerned about any risks to humanity? Don't worry, NASA addressed the issue in their live
1: stream.
2: Are we at risk of something catastrophic?
1: Literally so vanishingly small that no one would rightfully bet on anything right. like that. This is space, rock and dust. From a time so far ago that's been baked in the space radiation, that wouldn't be good for any organic, uh, any living thing. Sorry, we're all organic, and so we it's been sterilized by being in space, in effect. And we do the same thing when we go and sterilize stuff that we'll bring back from planets like Mars.
0: Just two weeks later, NASA had an update on OSIRIS-REx project as they unveiled the first glimpse of the carbon-rich soil scooped from the asteroid surface. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson seemed pretty enthused about what they've seen so far.
1: This is the biggest carbon-rich asteroid sample ever returned to Earth. Carbon and water are molecules. The carbon and water molecules are exactly the kinds of material that we wanted to find. They are crucial elements in the formation of our own planet. And they're going to help us determine the origin of elements that could have led to life.
0: The reason that the asteroids' contents are generating such excitement is because Bennu has been floating through our solar system for billions of years, but it's been largely unchanged in that time, so we can get a window into the history of our universe. Dr. Jennifer Millard is the host of the Awesome Astronomy podcast, and she says asteroids are hugely important in understanding the history of planet Earth too.
2: One of our theories is that asteroids like Bennu impacted Earth somewhere between four and a half and four billion years ago and brought the water and all of the scaffolding needed for life to our planet. And the fact that we are finding clay-rich materials which are absolutely embedded with water, and we're finding lots of carbon, that's exactly what we were hoping for, so this is just incredibly exciting.
0: This wasn't the first mission to an asteroid. The Japanese space programme has done so twice before in 2010 and 2020. But this is the largest sample gathered at around 250 grams. It's much more than scientists had hoped for. Now samples are being sent around the world for analysis to 60 different labs, including the Natural History Museum in London. Dr. Ashley King is a meteorite scientist there.
3: We found that they contain a high amount of carbon, so that's really exciting. That's kind of what we were hoping that we were going to see. The next steps for us is how much water is locked up within those minerals. What's the composition of that water? Does it match what we see here on the Earth? That's kind of the smoking gun for us, is to look for the kind of water reservoirs in the solar system that match what we have here on the Earth's ocean.
0: The world is a confusing place at the best of times but with AI, chatbots and Twitter descending into verified blue tick hell it's not always easy to tell what's real and what's not. A new YouGov study in the US shows that younger Americans are actually worse at detecting fake news than their older counterparts. Now you may be tut-tutting and saying well I'd definitely be well able to tell real from fake so get ready to prove it. The good people at Cambridge University have created what they call MIST. That's a misinformation susceptibility test. We've put a link to it And today's show notes, so go and have a try. The man behind it is on the line now, Dr. Raccoon Martins.
4: Yeah, pleasure to be here.
0: Why do we need to have this test? Shouldn't we just believe
4: what we read? We live in a new type of society. There are many different types of information, many different types of sources of information. And uh, we're also in an era of fake news generated by artificial intelligence. I became interested in the topic of doing research uh, on measuring susceptibility to misinformation. And I saw there was no standardized test. So I set out to do that using fake news generated by GPT and real news headlines from trustworthy sources to figure out how good people actually are in discerning real from fake news.
0: At The Smart 7 we run a daily news podcast so we consider ourselves experts at figuring out what's real and what's fake but I only scored 15 out of 20. Is that bad?
4: Well, 15, 15 out of 20 is is a good score it's, it's on the aver- upper average uh, range um, but... You may have seen that you got a separate score for uh, fake news detection, for real news detection for discernment. So it could be, for example, that you're a bit too sceptical in general. And that test tries to get feedback on that as well.
0: I've been told I'm sceptical in the past. Does that make sense? What should we be doing about AI in newsrooms? The test highlights some real dangers, right?
4: Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's with every big change in society. I think there are some huge potential benefits of using ai because you can also use ai to detect misinformation we can we let the gpt chat gpt do the uh, the missed test the misinformation acceptability test and it scored 20 out of 20 maybe even more worrying is that it generated fake news headlines that we thought were true so uh and then other headlines that we thought were fake but they were actually true but it it, it said it was fake so it can be really confusing at times
0: We're putting a link to the test in the show notes. But is there a reason you don't give the correct answers? Is it to stop people like me going back and filling in all the right answers, which would ruin your data?
4: Yeah, uh, there are a couple of reasons for that. The first one is that we we want to use this test in research as much as possible uh, until people know all the answers to the test, because then it's no longer that valuable for research. So first and for all, it's a research instrument. The second reason is you can actually retake the test and try to learn and try to figure it out. And if you do that, it's a bit more of an intense process. It's not quick and easy, but you you will learn more. And finally. the the, the correct responses are actually uh, available in the scientific paper that is published with the test.
0: Still to come on the Sunday 7, Will Guy gets to grips with CAPTCHAs and we hear about the woman who was outed by her Netflix as we look back at our favourite stories from 2023. As vegan and vegetarian meal options become more common, have you ever thought about what the protein in your meatless meal is? Some of it is soya, some like corn is derived from a protein called by a mushroom-like fungus. But did you know that the humble pea is a good source of protein? Soya is problematic because the beans tend to be imported from South America and can have an impact on rainforests. Whereas the humble pea can be grown right here. The biggest issue is the pea flavour. So let's meet Professor Claire Dominey of the John Innes Centre in Norwich, who's been working on getting the flavour gene out of peas. We've known about the flavour gene for a few decades, but why is it important to make flavourless peas?
5: Well, it's because um, I guess the world has changed and there's a huge demand now for protein, plant protein uh, to replace uh, meat and pea protein um, takes many boxes really. It's got high nutritional value, we've got um, high digestibility protein, we've managed to make that protein even more digestible so there's a great demand by the food industry to really incorporate this into a wide range of foods. However, at the moment, um, the amounts that they can add are fairly limited and the reason for that is because of pea flavour. So um, not everyone wants their foods to taste of peas all the time. There's nothing wrong with the taste of peas if you're eating peas. But if you're eating, uh, for example, a veggie-based burger, um, you might not want it to taste of peas.
0: Is soya no longer a viable option?
5: Um, The issue about soya is really, I think, that people are very anxious to reduce their dependency on soya. Much of that is associated with poor environmental Uh, considerations so for example destruction of rainforests and so on and other ecologically sensitive uh, habitats
0: you were among the team that made the breakthrough on flavorless peas where are we at on it now
5: Well, we identified that variant, yes, uh, you're correct, uh, back in the 90s Um, and uh, the thinking at the time was that this would be of great value to the vegetable pea industry. It could increase the amount of time between when they harvested the peas in the fields and they froze them, so it could reduce the rush, if you like, on on getting from the field to the factory. However, when that variant, uh, the so-called flavorless uh, variant, went into a breeding program, uh, the breeders told us some years later, that actually what they bred was a totally flavorless vegetable and of course that's what the food industry wants now is a completely flavorless protein uh, source or a, a completely flavorless flour
0: how long before we see the results of this in the supermarkets?
5: So, yeah, so the, the programme uh, which we've just kick-started is actually aimed at improving the digestibility of protein so that we get better value from the amino acids in our diet. So we're talking about adding four different variants into a breeding programme. Now, we've already made a good head start on that. So the breeders are really confident that within, it will still take a few years because even no matter how quickly you breed a new variety, you've got to multiply up that seed so it'll be yeah a few years so probably we estimate around five uh, before we can really uh, see this coming to fruition
0: We've all been driven demented by the security device on a lot of websites. We're asked to prove we're not robots by identifying which squares contain motorbikes or steps or really annoyed tech journalists. They are known as CAPTCHAs and our Smart 7 tech guru Will Guide has been puzzling over blurry photos all week. So Will, what are the CAPTCHAs and what does it stand for?
3: Well, so a capture is basically to test if there's a human at the end of a device using the internet. Um, capture itself is an acronym from completely automated public Turing test to tell computers and humans apart. No wonder nobody ever calls it that. Now, to many of us, these captures exist just to raise our heart rate. You're clicking on all the images with tractors in them. You're selecting all of the photos with traffic lights. But apparently, and this is a statistic I have quadruple checked now, society now spends 500 years every day solving solving captures.
0: What are they supposed to do?
3: Well, they're designed as a way of stopping spam and bots from extracting data from websites. Now, that's... In theory, because this week, a University of California survey said that bots are now better and significantly faster than humans at cracking these capture tests. And they looked at systems deployed across over 100 of the world's most popular websites to do that, and they're much better than humans.
0: So AI is helping robots win the capture wars.
3: Yeah, definitely. And that's why the captures that we're getting as humans are actually getting harder to solve because there's almost like an arms race now between bots and humans. With the ones that we mostly see on the internet, humans can do the average capture in between 9 and 15 seconds with an accuracy of somewhere between 50 and 84%. Bots are doing the most popular captures in less than a second with almost perfect scores. So I think we're doomed.
0: What's the next thing then if these captures are no more? Skynet?
3: (laughs) It's a constant game of cat and mouse. That's going to be the problem here. Loads of stuff is being tested as the next best thing. Um, Some companies are suggesting playing a little game before you get access to a website, but that'll get annoying really quickly.
0: Still to come on the Sunday 7, we look back at a crazy alien story from Mexico and hear the Chicken Symphony from New Zealand as we catch up on our favourite moments from 2023. Right after this... Welcome back. We've become accustomed to the role that algorithms play in our modern lives. They tick away underneath the surface of our social media, our streaming services and our Google searches. But how much do these algorithms actually know about us based on our everyday choices? BBC reporter Ellie House has made headlines as she revealed that her Netflix appeared to realise she was bisexual even before she did herself. She spoke to BBC's Women's Hour.
2: So I was in my second year of university. You know, I was watching a lot of Netflix alongside doing my studies, of course. Of course, um, and I I noticed that I was getting a lot of recommendations for. I would say, quite niche TV programs with lesbian characters or bisexual storylines, and I didn't think that much of it, to be honest. But when I told my friends about it, and these are people who, in any other sense, are basically the same as me, you know, with the same interests, with the same age, do the mm-hmm. same courses, they'd never heard of them. Again, I just thought, oh, that's interesting, Why? I wonder why I'm getting these recommendations. And yeah, cut to six months later, I realised that I was bisexual, and I thought, oh gosh, it, it really feels like Netflix knew first.
0: She's made a documentary on the subject for the BBC world service digging into how exactly the algorithms work and how much data they actually have on us and it's not just as simple as recommendations based on what other people who watched a particular show watched next
2: what i found out is actually behavioral information so not necessarily what you watch but how you watch is just as important. Give me an example. So what you click on, whether you pause halfway through, oh. whether you pause and how long for, what device you're watching on, what time of day you watch. Sometimes it's the the screen resolution. You know, really really minor details that subtitles? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> all Hands of this all of these things, you know, they to us they mean not very much. But um, if you think that a, a machine learning algorithm, which is bringing these recommendations, it has so much data and it draws patterns.
0: 2023 was a big year for UFOs, with NASA addressing the issue publicly for the first time when a major press conference on what it's now calling UAPs. That's Unidentified Anomalous Phenomena and there's a whole new approach from the space agency after decades of intense secrecy which just helped to fuel conspiracy theories and the lunatic fringe. In the same week in September that NASA finally opened up about UFOs, we saw an extremely odd presentation from Mexico which featured tiny mummified corpses that were apparently found in Peru back in 2017. They were presented to the Mexican Congress as part of an investigation into extraterrestrial life. But Jamie Mawson, the journalist and UFOlogist who made the presentation, has an extremely shaky history of discoveries.
4: In Peru,
3: in mina de diatomea, son de secados, Today, we are going to present two beings that were recovered in Peru in a diatom mine. They are dried bodies that were found in 2017, that have been deeply investigated, both by investigative journalists, and by scientists, who, here today, are going to present some of their extraordinary conclusions. I think there is a clear demonstration, that we are dealing with non-human specimens, that are not related to any other species of our world.
0: He claimed that the ET-like corpses had been carbon-dated and x-rayed and that one-third of their DNA was unknown. However, his claims have been rubbished by experts and similar claims he made previously were comprehensively debunked by expert Alexander Sokolov from the Scientists Against Myths YouTube channel back in 2021. They found that it was actually assembled from, well, a
4: common earth animal. Comparison shows that the reptiloid's cranial cavity fits perfectly the cranial cavity of a llama. The location of the olfactory bulbs, the inner ear, the brain hemispheres and the cerebellum precisely matches those in a llama skull. The whole facial part of the skull was broken off, leaving only the brain case. The skull was then rotated, so its back part faces forward. The reptiloid's face is actually the back of the poor llama's head.
0: Thursday saw much more interesting news about actual alien life as NASA continued with its bid to be more transparent about life out there. They're starting a new global crowdsourcing program with the aim of cataloguing and analyzing strange sightings and they've appointed a head of unidentified anomalous phenomena to coordinate the results. The headline news from the press conference was that they've neither been able to prove or disprove alien life as yet but Administrator Bill Nelson says the search is ongoing.
1: We are looking for signs of life, past and present and it's in our DNA to explore and to ask why things are the way they are. In June of last year, NASA commissioned an independent study team to examine unidentified anomalous phenomena. We did so with a few goals in mind. First to examine how NASA can use our expertise and instruments to study UAP from a scientific perspective. Second, shift the conversation about UAP from sensationalism to science.
0: the world-famous New Zealand Symphony Orchestra and they're playing for, well, chickens. It's a specially composed piece of music designed to appeal to our feathered friends and it's come about as part of a collaboration between New Zealand-based Bostock Farms and the Symphony Orchestra to highlight the importance of ethical farming. Peter Biggs is the CEO of the NZSO.
6: It's another world first from Hawke's Bay and from Aotearoa New Zealand. The NZSO, like Bostock, is about being world class and about well-being, and so the two organisations have combined to create something very different and very new, and we hope this catches on. As we know, all animals actually respond to music, as all human beings do. But chickens respond to a particular type of music, which is Baroque. So strings, uh, oboe, bassoon, a harpsichord. So we got Hamish Oliver, who's a composer, to do an original composition, again a world first, uh, specifically for chickens. And we tested it on them, and they love it. So we're launching it today, and as I say, we hope this becomes something that the whole world picks up because I think everybody wants whatever species you are to have a good life. And so Bostock certainly want that, as do we. We're lucky with Kiwi musicians. I mean, they are adaptable, they're open, and and they're generous as well as hugely talented. So they have loved this. This is a new experience for them, and uh, they get to play the music that they love which is the greatest music ever made. They get to share it with a whole lot of Kiwis. And they also like giving people a different experience of classical music. So, again, we just want everybody to enjoy music, not just the chickens, but the rural community as well. And we think if we can do that, we'll be a better country.
0: Volstock Brothers is one of New Zealand's leading free-range chicken farms run by brothers Ben and George. They're committed to continuing with the classical music experiment as part of their organic approach to farming.
2: Well, there's a lot of science that uh, shows that classical music is really good for the animal welfare and the response from our chickens has been really, really good. We will continue to play classical music to our chickens in the sheds. It's a fun take on our way to uh, constant improvement for our animal welfare.
6: This has been the Sunday 7. Wherever you're listening, do us a favour and hit the follow button. We'll be back tomorrow at 7am with the regular Smart 7. Have a great rest of your weekend. Written, produced and published by Daft